0: Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back, everyone. Sammy, what have you got on your mind today?
1: Hey, Monica. I am very excited about tonight's topic. This is something that I feel very fired up about, and the topic is the power of language. I have been seeing so much about how language that healthcare providers use affects patients' outlook and their outcomes. And I don't think our words are even close to benign. In fact, I think they have a ton of power that we need to shine a little bit more of a light on. So tonight I am
0: excited to talk to you about the power of language,
1: both positive and negative.
0: I'm really excited to talk about that because ever since we had this topic idea, I've been paying attention very closely to what my patients say in a new light. And one thing I've noticed is that When they come in and when I think that they're tough to treat, in air quotes, they usually have these quotes from other clinicians that they're telling me. Recently, a patient said that a physical therapist, now this is one of us, a physical therapist looked at their MRI results and said, these are the worst MRIs that I've seen for someone who's still walking.
1: Holy shit. Sorry. I'm just going to say it (laughs)
0: It it needs to be said that person is coming in for persistent low back pain and they have a litany of other things that people have said to them over time. And the way that people can quote what somebody said to them, I don't know if it's a true quote in that one. I think it is, it seems to still have a visceral reaction on the person when they talk about it, the way that people remember our words really strikes a chord with me because I think, gosh, how many times have I just said something to give someone a plausible explanation of what's going on and they've hooked onto that? And I can think back earlier in my practice, especially how many times I may have explained something as being too weak or a pelvis that needs more support because you're pregnant and you don't have enough support around your pelvis. Or I Probably said the word unstable where it's like not strong enough or we got to get these muscles turned on like your muscles never turned off can we just <laughs> your muscles yeah. never turned off okay we don't have any evidence to say that a normal healthy person is walking around with no glutes so totally we need to explain that better yes
1: yes Ugh. As we talked about with Anne-Marie, this is a topic that is so hard to unsee once you start seeing it, but it is also so hard to undo because we are so steeped in this kinesiopathological model in our training, but it really takes a lot of effort on our part to choose our words carefully. I think I'm really echoing Anne-Marie from last week when I say that you really have to consider every statement that you're making and have an intent behind it. And I still catch myself doing things like that. I had a patient the other day who I asked her to bend forward so I could look at her spinal flexion and she was able to palm the floor. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll do the and scale on her see if she has any hypermobility. So I took her through the and scale and I explained that the scale was meant to measure joint hypermobility. And when she came back the next week, she said that she had thought about it, and now she's not sure what she can do. She's afraid to lift anything. She's afraid to move because she doesn't want to injure herself. She went on Google and found out that joint hypermobility is something to fear. And now this young, healthy, very, very strong, I might add, five out of five MMTs on everything, is freaked out to lift anything. And it made me so sad. This was recently. And I have been really trying to choose my language carefully. And it is amazing the times that you catch yourself slipping up on this. So I'm not perfect. Throughout this podcast, I don't claim to be perfect. But damn, is it important. And I think it's something we all need to be more mindful of.
0: So the power of language, what does that mean? Sammy, can you hit us with some definitions? What are we talking about when we're seeing the power of language?
1: Yeah, I think it's really nicely framed when we think about the placebo and the nocebo effect. In my research in this topic, I came across those terms, and I think a lot of us are familiar with the placebo effect. The placebo effect is defined as when a sham intervention causes an improvement in symptoms. So basically, there's something that essentially is a fake intervention a sugar pill or a fake PT intervention, there's something that they do that isn't the true thing, but the patient has an expectation that it would make them better and that can cause an improvement. The placebo effect is pretty well studied and it is powerful. And so there has also been some newer research explaining that not only does the subjective experience of the patient change when they're exposed to the placebo effect, but there's also different brain activation with it there's actually physical evidence within the brain on imaging studies that shows that things change when people have positive expectations about what's
0: going to happen with their treatment, which is really freaking cool. Yeah. Your chemicals, your endogenous opioids, are being secreted at an increased rate. You're getting more serotonin, more dopamine, flooding your brain because you think something's going to help you. And I recall in PT school, I was like, oh, the placebo effect. God, it's so annoying. This study wasn't significant because the results were similar to placebo. And the more I practice, the more I love placebo. I'm like, let's placebo all over the place. If I can paint this, not as a cure-all, but in that space where you're, I would say, suggesting that this is helpful or saying many people have found improvement when they start with this. That is like painting a placebo effect for someone. It's starting to say, hey, this could work for you because this has worked for other people, which is actually different than saying, let's try this. There's a tone of uncertainty there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that kind of leads us into the opposite of placebo. Could you tell us about the nocebo effect?
1: Yeah. The nocebo effect is the opposite of the placebo effect, where if there is a negative expectation, there is a negative outcome that gets created. For example, this is really applicable to the pain population. If somebody is told this could be very painful, this might cause you some pain. And the people who are expecting that to be painful, the people who have that negative expectation that this is going to cause them harm or discomfort, will have a higher subjective rating of that pain. And there's also changes in brain activation, just like we see with the placebo effect. So it's not only a subjective change, but it's also a physical chemical change in the brain. So again, we can have this both ways, which is why it's so important to manage our patient's expectations, right?
0: Right, right. And I love this quote from one of the articles we were looking at. It says, expecting a painful stimulus enhances both the subjective unpleasant experience of an innocuous stimulus. So that is innocuous means it may or may not do something and the objective responses in some brain regions. So like you said, we're seeing both. And I think that's so critical because the placebo effect and the nocebo effect are now being found to actually have roots on a physiological basis for modulating pain in coupling with the word expectations. I think expectations is the key to unlocking the power of language because we're constantly setting people up for something. I would almost say we take for granted how much we are setting people's expectations in therapy. Yeah.
1: And I will add the little caveat too, that this extends beyond pain. So there's other medical conditions where the outcome can change besides pain that are also relevant to pelvic floor PT. One of the studies that we had come across was that with patients who were exposed to a drug that they were told could possibly cause erectile dysfunction, the people who were told of this side effect experienced erectile dysfunction more than the patients who were not told about the side effect.
0: And if I remember correctly, it was a 30% difference. It was something like 46% of the group. And if these numbers are wrong, we'll link it in the show notes. But I remember it was a significant difference. And what's startling to me is the way that the language changes because the changes in language are so minute that, for example, they took pregnant women and gave them epidurals in the same location. And one group, they said, this is going to feel like a bee sting, and it's the worst part of the procedure. And to the other woman, they said, and now we're going to place the needle for the epidural and you'll feel comfortable. That was it. Something along those lines. There was a significant difference in the pain that the woman experienced associated with epidural. Yep. So that's cool if you phrase something in a neutral, positive way. It also feels kind of devastating to think about how many times you may have said to someone, this might hurt. Yeah. (laughs) Or even what surprised me was seeing that one of the articles stated Even asking people a lot about pain, inquiring about whether you have pain all the time is planting a nocebo of sorts or demonstrating ambiguity like, oh, let's try this treatment or let's see how this works for you. Those types of statements actually rendered things, medications and other treatments not as effective. And I was surprised by that. I honestly thought when we were going to talk about power of language. It was just going to be the terrible things that people latch on to <laughs> or unwittingly. Cause a lot of times I don't think any of us are trying to harm our patients. I want to be clear about that. But I think a lot of the times we reach for a plausible explanation ourselves, and that is easiest in the biomechanical realm. And so we give people these explanations and Unfortunately, when we step back from what we know about the science and you just hear what you said, it paints an image in a person's mind that their body is broken and usually that their body is something that they can't get to understand themselves, which is maybe one thing to face. But if we take someone who's catastrophizing and experiencing high helplessness and we tell them something they don't understand about their body, which is supposedly the root cause of their pain, we're essentially setting them up to be dependent on our assessment and treatment. And then <laughs> we eventually get tired of this patient and we're like, oh my God, they just always <laughs> need me, you know, to assess yeah. and treat them. Maybe we have that awakening, but that's the pattern that I've seen. And oof, it's like gasoline and fire when the two combine And I I think maybe because we know so much about medicine, we sometimes forget how scary it can be to hear some of these statements. We think unstable pelvis Well, of course, pelvic floor muscle and core exercises will help that. But you forget how much you know. Yes. You forget yes. that when you say unstable, maybe what you really mean is it moves a little more because you don't really believe this person's pelvis is going to fall apart on them. Mm-hmm. But you already said unstable. And, and you know what unstable implies?
1: Broken.
0: Gonna <laughs> give out. It's going to give out at any moment. Yeah. It's unstable. Yeah, totally.
1: It's crazy. I I just want everyone to pause for a second, whoever's listening to this, and think back to before PT school. Think back to what you knew about the human body. It's hard to imagine, right? And it's hard to think about these experiences that we've had before PT school because it's all in the context now of what we've gone through in our education. But if you think back to doctor's appointments and experiences that you've had with the medical field, you could probably think back to a time where you felt scared or felt unsure about what the doctor meant by something or didn't really understand. And I think that it's important for us to connect with that fear that our patients come in with because they're hurting, they're unsure, and they don't know the anatomy. They don't know what the term unstable means. They don't know what the term hypermobile means. Or that if you're explaining that the diastasis recti is a separation of the abdominal muscles, What are they going to think? Oh, my God, am I torn apart? Are my guts going to fall out? Mm -hmm. These words that we choose have a lot of ambiguity, and they mean different things outside of a medical context. And I think we need to sit down and reflect on what does this mean to a lay person? Because there's Mm -hmm. such a huge disconnect. We don't have that experience anymore. We can never truly go back. And it may even require us to have a conversation with our friends and family about what does the term unstable mean to you? Would you be freaked out if you heard that? You know what I mean? We just don't have the same perspective anymore. And it's hard.
0: That's a cool exercise, Sammy. I think that is definitely worth revisiting to gain perspective. And I would challenge people to just pick one patient that's tough to treat this week and think about... What did you say to them and what are they asking you? And behind their question, because they're asking you if their flat feet could be affecting their knee pain while running. They're asking you if their slip disc could be the reason that their back hurts. And they're asking you these very minute questions. But here's what I've reflected on. And I'm curious to see what you think. When they're asking me that question, they're trying to wrap their mind around the pain. So just the medical research answer is not necessarily the way to go. They're they're asking something else behind it. It's their uncertainty. And so we need to tread lightly to know that the field is already poised, you know? And sometimes they're curious about it. But I think if you're paying attention, you'll notice the difference between someone who's curious about something and is like, hey, do you think that this could affect that? And I think we can detect the difference when someone is actually asking because they're scared and they're trying to find an answer. And you know what? People do go home and look a lot more things up than we give them credit for. We're usually mad that they looked it up. Because of all the terrible things they read about how their guts are falling out of them and they can never run again. You can never do another crunch. You can never do another V-up and et etc. Et A lot of marketing out there, unfortunately, uses nocebo to say, if you have this and you don't get treated, you're going to be effed.
1: And we are so guilty of that in the pelvic floor realm, don't you think? I do. A lot of our pelvic floor marketing is based off of prevent this postpartum complication, prevent this, prevent that, come in for a checkup to make sure that you don't have problems. And it's an area that a lot of people are unfamiliar with. We don't really get taught a whole lot about our pelvic floor. And so people are fearful. They don't really know what they're supposed to be feeling or looking for. And so now, even though they may feel completely fine and not have symptoms, they want to come in and get a checkoff from you to make sure that they're okay, because they can't trust their body anymore. And I think that's a big thing that we're guilty of in pelvic floor PT. And I'm just going to step aside for a second and also call out the phrase, common but not normal, which is such a big catchphrase in pelvic floor PT. I have said it so many times and realized, like, holy shit, that's nocebic language right there things that you don't even catch, right? It's just such a pervasive part of pelvic floor PT. Leakage is common, but not normal. Prolapse is common, but not normal. And actually, maybe it is normal. And maybe we shouldn't make
0: people feel like there's something broken about them. I think what we're trying to do there is normalize, speak to the high incidence of pelvic floor dysfunction, but we're not actually making the person feel that good. I think in our one-to-one delivery, we can. A lot of times people feel isolated and embarrassed and ashamed. And so I know with that phrase, what I am trying to do is say, it's okay, but come get help. But I'm with you. I've actually stopped saying that. And you know what? I don't miss it. When, When people are in my office and I can see that they're feeling isolated or they're concerned, I'll say a lot more people are dealing with this than you think. And if I have some stats, I might throw out some stats about how many people experience this type of issue. And that is what normalizes it. Saying, did you know that 60% of moms postpartum struggle with sexual function or something along those lines? Then that person can go, oh, me and 60% of other people. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. But we don't need to tell people that they're not normal.
1: Yeah, totally. (laughs) I've been using the phrase common but treatable. That's my Mm -hmm. replacement for that.
0: Okay. Common but treatable. You know what? I like that.
1: That's my plug for women's health PTs out there. APTA, (laughs) pelvic health PTs, section on women's health. Let's replace this common but treatable.
0: Yeah.
1: Because some amount of prolapse is actually normal. In women who've had children.
0: Especially early on.
1: Yeah, it's okay. I just need that phrase to have a different feel to it. It makes people feel like they're broken and I, I don't love it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. that's my plug. Yes. And for just a little bit more of a soapbox here, if you have vaginal delivery with tearing, how are we going to tell you that some degree of pelvic floor dysfunction is not normal for what you just experienced and that's where it it gets bad we want to treat it but let's also use the guidelines and the guidelines say that it's okay to have leakage for the first three months and you know what whatever persists after three months needs to get cleared up can we stop terrifying people that they're falling to pieces and can't walk because they have urine leakage at six weeks the guidelines say three months But this is where evidence-based practice needs to come in when we're having conversations with our patients. And it's tough. Honestly, it constantly requires a reappraisal. It requires relearning all the time and realizing that we're going to mess up and also having grace and compassion for ourselves. Because like you said earlier, Sammy, we're going to keep making these mistakes even when we know it. Things that you didn't even realize
1: might be interpreted a certain way are going to be interpreted wrong, and then you'll learn from them, and then you'll add it to your toolbox. So I'm trying right. to be kind with myself about it too. It's a challenge because right now this is my big soapbox that I'm on. <laughs> so anytime <laughs> I catch it, I'm like, oh no, not again. But yeah, it is it is hard. And I think that we, we really want to have the answers. And like you say, the biomechanical model Really likes us to have those clear cut answers that make us feel good because we can be like, boom, this is what's wrong with you. I'm certain, everything's certain. I know what I'm talking about. And maybe we don't,
0: and that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, it just doesn't leave room for the natural uncertainty that accompanies life. It's so artificial to try to say that I alone will figure out what's happening with you. And Before we go on another rampage related to the fixer, (laughs) let's head back. Okay. We know that there's the power of language. We've given plenty of examples of how nocebic language actually shows up in pelvic health. I think there's actually times where we use a lot of placebic language as well. I've seen providers do it saying, Hey. Using lube during sex helps, even if you're not having pain. That's a great placebo statement that opens the door for a lot of people. So, Sammy, are there specific strategies that you would give someone to start working on the power of language? Yes.
1: I would highly recommend, actually, anyone listening, if you're interested in this topic, there's a really cool article that came out 2012 Hauser is the author, and the title is The Nocebo Phenomena in Medicine. And in this article, there's this really cool little box where they talk about these different categories that can cause some unintended consequences in our patients' interpretation of what we say. And so I actually think it'd be fun right now to go through these and list off the ones that they say, and then also apply that to PT and the pelvic floor, because this article is meant for any healthcare provider. And I think that there's a lot of things in there that I didn't even realize. I researched this article a few days ago, and I was like, wow, I learned a lot from this. So I think it'd be really worthwhile for us to chat about that, too, if you're up for it. Let's do it. Okay. The first thing is that we don't want to cause a lot of uncertainty with our patients. So one of the areas where we can cause some harm is these uncertain statements. You had touched on this a little bit earlier when we were talking about things that sound ambiguous, like, let's try this, or this might help, or things like that. I loved how you changed it up to say, a lot of my patients have found benefit in trying, blah, let's do it. Any other uncertain statements that you can think of that might cause more ambiguity or confusion for patients?
0: I definitely think that hits on the majority of them. I, I would say it's usually just in response to different things, but, oh, I don't know, and I've caught myself saying that sometimes when I actually disapprove of something that a patient is about to do. Yeah, let's see if that'll work when I don't think that's going to help. <laughs> I think that's one way that it perhaps seeps out. Mm, okay, so a little bit of a different
1: focus, which also might have the consequence of steering them away from that thing if you don't sound
0: certain about it. So maybe not the worst. But who's know. to say that I know that True true there we go that is me assuming that i know what's best for them which is actually undermining their autonomy they're an adult i don't treat kids what if you want to go do something i guess go do it how am i supposed to know that it's not going to help you yeah try it out come back and let me know how it went because you see what i do there Now let's assume that I said this about another provider that I said, oh, I don't think Cairo is going to help you with this. Let's go see. Let's try it. What I just did is I just undermined whatever chiropractor they're going to go to. It, It could be an amazing chiropractor. It could literally be a person who cares, is compassionate, is there to work with them. But you know what? I just said, I don't think it'll help you.
1: Yeah. You just undermined that benefit that they could have gotten.
0: And we've seen this because we've all had a patient who got referred by a doctor who said to us, my doctor didn't really think this is going to help, but they sent me anyways, and I'm here.
1: You're like, sweet. Thanks, doc.
0: Full <laughs> yeah. time you work with a patient. You're like, <laughs> obviously you don't believe you're going to get yeah. better. And then to tie this in full circle – do you know what a risk factor for pelvic girdle pain is and and for pelvic girdle pain worsening and staying postpartum it's a lack of belief in improvement that is from a clinical practice guideline on pelvic girdle pain so that says to me that if you set the expectation that something's not going to help we know the placebo effect will probably kick in maybe not for everyone by the way huge disclaimer there will be people who do not And you'll be like, but this person got better. Yes, we understand. But the placebo and nocebo effect are real. And if we tell them it's not going to work, and they don't believe it's going to work, we could be putting them at risk for developing chronic pain, which is what we're trying to fix. So it's heartbreaking to think about the damage that we inflict just by saying, you know what, I don't think it's going to work.
1: Yes, I agree. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with saying different people respond to different treatments. Why don't you try it out and let me know how it worked for you? Boom. Or even saying, I'm not sure about that. Why don't you let me know what you find? Put it back on them sometimes too. I occasionally will do that if there's a patient who is really wanting a lot of answers from me that are beyond my scope. I don't always feel now that I have to have the answer to everything. Sometimes people will ask me some really off the wall stuff and I'm trying to get more comfortable with saying, I actually have never heard of that massage tool. I've never heard of that XYZ. I Y, Z. I don't know much about that. If you try it, let me know how you like it. Yeah. And then you're not shitting all over it. Then they don't go into anything with a negative expectation.
0: Okay, Sammy. So what's the next one?
1: Okay. The first one was causing uncertainty. Went through that. Second one is jargon which we've touched on quite a bit. I'll read off their examples here, which I think are really great examples. The first quote that they have here is in reference to a CT scan. And the doctor is saying, then we'll cut you into lots of thin slices. And then another quote that they had in here was, if they're attaching an oxygen mask, for example, now we're going to hook you up to the artificial nose. Or another thing that this is certainly applicable to PT that they say is, we looked for metastases and the result was negative. So what does negative mean? Does negative mean that it's a negative outcome or does negative mean that the test was negative and that's a good thing? You know what I mean? And what is
0: metastases? (laughs) Yeah,
1: totally. And I just look at those quotes and I'm like, oh my gosh, totally to a healthcare provider. It's all stuff that you just brush off, but it might sound incredibly threatening to a patient because they don't have that context So I think the medical jargon is something that we are super guilty of in PT. you listed off some wonderful examples like unstable. Unstable is something that we love to throw around or hypermobile. That's not just a PT term, but we use those terms readily and they could be perceived as quite threatening.
0: Yeah, definitely. What's the next category?
1: The next category is ambiguity. So if there's an ambiguous statement, that could be perceived as threatening for example in relation to preparing for surgery we'll just finish you off <laughs> which hold on a second what <laughs> or we're putting you to sleep now it'll soon
0: all be over oh, right interesting yeah see some of these i wouldn't think of as nocebic i think of them as like casual yeah i've heard healthcare providers myself included at different times saying things like this, and what I'm realizing is we're trying to speak layperson, but we're being vague. That's where it doesn't work. Rather than saying, we're about to finish the procedure, we probably have 10 minutes left, or we're very close to the end of the procedure. Boom. I guess what I'm hearing is that's actually better. Being more objective helps you be neutral, rather than trying to dumb it down. Sometimes using really direct terms can just feel very
1: direct. And I'm going to give the example that I had as a student, actually, I was in a pelvic floor PT rotation. And I would often use the phrase, okay, we'd like to do an internal examination. And are you comfortable doing an internal exam today? So that's how I would ask about consent. And I started to realize that When I would ask somebody if they were comfortable doing an internal exam, they wouldn't always understand what that meant. And I have really morphed my practice into being extremely explicit about what I say during that consent process and talking about the internal exam looks like me inserting a single gloved, lubricated finger inside the vagina or rectum, depending on what I'm doing. And I will be feeling for the tightness or tension in the muscles. I'll be asking you if there's any areas of sensitivity or discomfort. I will be asking you to perform some squeezes of the muscles and to see if you can relax appropriately, things like that. So I'm getting really nitty gritty. And it's just interesting how even the term internal exam might be a very ambiguous term. Jargon.
0: Jargon. Jargon. Yeah. And ambiguous. Like, huh? Yeah. What is that? <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm with you. A lot of times people are like, what? That was definitely a, an entry level thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. Definitely. So the next category
1: on here is emphasizing the negative. So mm. some of the quotes that they have in this section are, you are a high risk patient, or that always hurts a lot, or you must strictly avoid lifting heavy objects. You don't want
0: to end up paralyzed. Oof. <laughs> You're going to be sore after this. Hmm. That's probably going to hurt. Yeah. This is always the worst part. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that those are as common. What do you think? Can you think of any obvious ones? I think in the PT realm, one
1: that I can think of is maybe with stretching, for example. A lot of times stretching a hamstring, people might say, oh yeah, this is always really painful, but you'll feel better after. You just got to get through it or things like that. Foam rolling. Foam rolling. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Yep. So those are, I think, less scary than the ones that they had listed in this article. But I think we, we certainly still do some of that.
0: Is there anything else on there?
1: Yeah. So there's two more categories. The next one is focusing attention. This is one that I really am guilty of, and this is one that I wanted to bring up with you. So focusing attention on pain. So for example, are you feeling nauseous? Or signal if you feel pain. I am so guilty of this. Does that hurt? Does this hurt? Are you uncomfortable? I'm always checking in about pain and drawing attention and focusing attention on that pain. And I read that and I was like, oh, oh," I felt that little, oh my God, what have I done? So that one hit close to home for me. I was curious to your thoughts on that. Same exact thing.
0: I definitely was like, oh no, asking about pain like that. So perhaps there is more benefit to saying that I'll usually tell people at the beginning, I do want to reproduce some of your pain to make sure it's musculoskeletal because that will let us know what's going on and only a little bit of pain. So I'm now like thinking about that statement. I think Mm -hmm. it's still okay. I do tell people, let me know if you feel anything, otherwise I'm going to assume you're at whatever their baseline is. So I wonder if I am hyping them up with that.
1: Or perhaps
0: I'm reading into it too much now.
1: Okay, here, I'm going to give you my little spiel that I've been doing that now I'm just like rethinking everything about. And I want you to let me know what you think of it. Okay. (laughs) So frequently, if I have somebody who seems very nervous and maybe who has a lot of pain, and I would like to do an internal exam on them, one of the things I might do is sit them down and say, With some of these exams, people can report some pain. My intent is not to cause you pain, but I do want to know if anything that we do reproduces your familiar sensations so that I can know that this is related to the pelvic floor and not something else. However, I want to give you the guideline of somewhere around a 3 or 4 out of 10. If we go past that kind of mild discomfort, slight pain level, that's where I want to back off and not cause you any more. So throughout our exam, if you go past that number, please let me know. And check in with me the whole time.
0: From what we just learned, you say some people have pain with this and you could flip it and say, this is a comfortable exam for most people. Mm, Okay. Or most people think this is a very comfortable and easy exam. Because the truth is, if we're really as consensual and slow going and attentive to our patients as we want to be and as we think we are, then for the majority of people, they were like, oh, that didn't really hurt much. Mm -hmm. And I think that signals to the fact that we probably overhyped it in an effort to provide truly informed consent. They're not saying leave out the information. They're saying just flip it because all you talk about is pain there. You don't talk about it being comfortable.
1: Totally. I know. And it's funny, as I was talking – I'm mentally tallying up the ne- amount of times that I said the word pain in that spiel. Oh, and I was wow. like, oh, uh. it was just something I hadn't even reflected on. I felt like I was trying to prepare them for what's to come and give them a say in the pain levels and give them a clear expectation. But now I'm realizing that that was also falling into the category of emphasizing the negative, which is one of the categories that we talked about. So we're focusing attention on pain and we're emphasizing the negative in that statement. So I've got to do some retooling of that
0: statement and figure out a better way to say it. And I liked your suggestion there. Here's an idea. So you could say, and I'm just thinking for both of us now, the majority of people find this to be a very comfortable exam. However, you have the right to stop it at any point. Just say the word. That's it.
1: Cool. Yeah, this is interesting. I feel like I have some reflecting to do. I'm with
0: you on that one. I'm with you on that one, because I'm over here saying the same thing. I treat a lot of ortho these days, and I'm saying the same thing. I'm saying the word pain 50 bajillion times, and how does that feel, and did that change your pain? Ugh, cut it out, especially when it could make a two-point pain difference. That's a lot. One of the phrases that I've
1: been enjoying using more is either, how does that feel, or does that feel better, worse, or same? And then it's a menu of options in that way that you're not leading them one way or another. And I, I've been trying to ask less because I check in a lot. And I'm trying to check in at more long intervals. So the final category in this article is called ineffective negation and trivialization. So mm. the examples that they give are you don't need to worry or it's just going to bleed a bit.
0: yeah yeah Yeah. you know what and there's nothing worse than saying to someone oh don't worry about that Mm -hmm. it's like what you just totally dismissed my very valid worry of whatever it was yeah that is for sure a no-go technique and then the trivialization oh it's just a little bit of blood some people pass out at the sight of a little bit of blood again it's you know what word comes to mind here is assume Mm -hmm. You're assuming that it doesn't matter. You're assuming it's okay. And we're not telling you to tell people to fear it. It's a lot of assumption. Definitely. And I've caught myself using this in a
1: PT context quite a bit is that minimizing or trivializing of a symptom. So, for example, if somebody comes back and their ridiculous symptoms are a little bit worse. I just did it right there. I just said a little bit. If their symptoms are worse after doing an exercise, I might say something like, oh, I think the nerve is a little bit irritated or I think blah, 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 whatever. And the person often will say, no, it's a lot irritated or they'll, they'll say something to correct me because they don't like the term a little bit because it does sound trivializing. It doesn't sound like you're taking it seriously. And it feels, now that I'm thinking about it, it does seem like a brush off.
0: Definitely. This is really powerful stuff. And another ceiling-breaking moment on the show where once you see it, you can't unsee it. So this week, pick a patient, notice how you're speaking to them, and consider being more objective, taking out those adjectives like little, some. You don't need that. Be more Straight to the point, you could still be highly compassionate and empathetic, but you do not need to express that through minimization, trivializing, platitudes. We're not here to make people, quote unquote, feel good. We're here to help people understand what's going on. So let's speak to them like they're adults. Let's inform them of what's going on. Let's skew towards the positive rather than. Some people experience a little bit of pain, the majority of people feel that this is comfortable. majority of people have this. Thankfully, I am so glad that we work in a profession where we have very few negative side effects from the intervention that we primarily work with. So we don't have to talk about, this is gonna cause you nausea, indigestion, heartburn, (laughs) diarrhea, upset stomach. Thankfully, we don't live in that space. Because this conversation gets, I think, so much harder and so much more ethical when you're dealing with that. But we do have this fine line of consent. We explored how we're trying to gather consent in a placebic or at least neutral way. So sit with that and start changing it one patient at a time so that you can handle how much work this is because it's a lot of work. Choosing your words this carefully can feel so tiring sometimes. I've come out of a session full of this and been like, oh my god, every cell in my brain just worked as hard as it possibly could (laughs) to try to explain this in a new way. It's a lot of work. Yep, growth spurts are painful. (laughs) It gets better. It 100% gets better. So if there's something you wanna reframe, I would say practice before you have a patient. That way it's going to feel so much easier when you're in the room with a live person. Call your PT buddy and try to break down some of these. Pull up the article that Sammy talked about. Have that list near you and check off some of your statements. Yes.
1: And just want to reemphasize, call your PT buddy. It's funny, I was reflecting as you were talking about how we were practicing what we might say in that spiel that I gave you. And halfway through, I was like, okay, maybe we're getting into the weeds on this. Maybe I'll edit some of that out. But now that I'm thinking about it, I think that stuff is important to leave into the podcast because that's what you need to do with your peers. You need to call up your friends, your colleagues, whatever, and sit down and say, how does this sound to you? How could I phrase this better? And practice it because... We do that in PT school all the time we practiced our subjective exam and how we might phrase certain things to patients, but it doesn't sound fluid the first time you say it. It doesn't sound fluid the second time you say it. It's going to take some repetition and some practice and some tweaking to find a spiel that you like that resonates with your way of practicing and your commitment not to use harmful language with patients. And I think it's an important thing to practice. So that's my ask on top of what you asked, Monica, is just use your peers and practice it out loud a few times. It's going to sound awkward and rehearsed, but just do it. You'll thank yourself. It's not innate.
0: All of us have to
1: learn it. So this conversation was really fun in a lot of ways because I went in all fired up about like all the terrible terrible shit you hear from patients and then I feel like we left with some really subtle things I felt like I was better at this than I now think I am even after reading these articles and doing this research that I have nobody's perfect with it there are shades of gray but I encourage everybody to get into the weeds on this stuff it is not all about the big scary dinosaur statements that you hear from other PTs or doctors or things like that but it's about these little insidious ways that we can either really enhance the patient's experience or really cause them harm.
0: Yeah, and I'll say that we probably live in the middle of those two extremes. A Absolutely. Time. Yeah. So how can we strive for a placebo effect with more of our patients? Again, not cherry coding. Please do not go out and think that this means you need to lie to everyone and tell them it's going to get better. But, you know, considering how many times we may skew towards the negative. Yeah. So it's been fun. I've also had a similar eye opening experience. So I'm excited to sit with this longer uh, and really let this one sink in. And I think this is a topic we'll revisit. A lot of relationship building is
1: communication. And a huge part of communication is verbal. And so we really need to look at that aspect of it really minutely and then start to unpack these things.
0: Awesome. Thank you for another great episode. Everyone out there, thank you for listening. Tune back in next week. Thank you
1: so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.